Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, May 4th. Uh, today we have an interview with Jake Taylor, someone we have listened to for a long time because we're big listeners on Value After Hours. Uh, what were some of your highlights of the interview? Yeah, I would just say, I think three things. If you like Berkshire Hathaway, he is one of the experts out there, especially on FinTwit. All the Value After Hours guys are on the Berkshire model, on Buffett and Munger's philosophy. If you love that stuff, it was perfect timing to coincide with the Berkshire Hathaway weekend, although we really didn't talk about that because it was recorded beforehand. But uh, if you liked John Bathgate or John Rotanti's interviews, I think this fits up perfectly as well. We talked a lot about investing philosophy, value investing in the 21st century. And then I would lastly, I would say, if you like our show, uh, Value After Hours is something we modeled our show after. So if you don't know about, you probably know what Value After Hours is, but if you don't, I'd give it a listen because it's very similar to what we do. Okay. And then we'll have our show notes after. A quick reminder also, we are separate today. Uh, so if it sounds a little weird or anything like that, we're actually in different spots. So we apologize if there's any hiccups with that. Uh, but before we get to that, new recs are out, seven investing. Uh, which one was your favorite? Who? I would say Max Chatskows. Uh, all of them were interesting. I think there was a wide range of picks. Great, you know, great addition to the research process, but I definitely took a hard look at Max's. May have to be a company that, you know, we take a look, you know, a further look at, take a deep dive on maybe. Um, not really sure, but overall, Really great group of picks. I mean, their track record shows that this group, the the seven investing team, has beat the S and P five hundred over the last over a year since they started, and it's for a cheap, not a cheap price. It's for uh, you know quality at a discount. It's seventeen bucks a month usually, but with our discount code CCM, you can get ten dollars off your first month. Try it out for only seven bucks. Help out our show. Help yourself out with great investing picks. And that's all there is to say, right, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, it's not a deep value play, but it's value. Uh, it's quality, kind of. You're, scra- you're, you're, you're getting quality uh, on, a, on a drop. Yes. The, anal- the analogies are, are, t- are definitely there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, without further ado, here's our interview with Jake Taylor. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Today, we are welcomed by Jake Taylor. Uh, He's the CEO of Farnham Street Investments, author of The Rebel Allocator. Uh, You might recognize his voice from Value After Hours. He co-hosts that with uh, Tobias Carlisle and Bill Brewster, who's been on the show before. Am I missing anything? I guess the host of the Five Good Questions podcast also. Sure. That's that's good too. (laughs) Wear a lot of different hats. Yeah. (laughs) All right. uh, So let's start with Farnham Street. Uh, I guess just what, how did you end up starting that and how did that come about? Sure. Um, by the way, thanks for having me on guys. It's good to be here. Um, so I was, I had a little bit of an unconventional route to get into the finance industry. Uh, and I'm still not sure if that's helped or hurt, uh, on net, but 
Um, my original background, I got an undergrad degree in economics, but then right out of college, I got this job to become um, an operator in training. And this is to be running the power grid. Uh, so it was a, about an 18-month slog that was an electrical engineering degree crammed into that time period. And once you graduated from that program, then you were eligible to go work on the control room floor. And so I worked on um, ran the power grid for the state of California for about a dozen years. Um, and while I was working that job, it was a great career. I mean, it was like terrific. Um, I loved it, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I grew up fully. And um, I thought, well, if I go back and get my MBA, maybe that will allow me to, if I want to go into management here, or it just keeps my options open. So I, uh, I got into UC Davis's MBA program uh, while I was working, um, they have a working professionals program that's like nights and weekends. And my first year there, uh, I happened to win this lottery to go back and have lunch with Warren Buffett. Uh, and he's, wow. you know, he does this, he did this a lot uh, in that time period where he'd have students come and, um, you know, different schools would come visit him. So, but I felt very fortunate, obviously. And, and I knew something about him, but I didn't know a whole lot other than like, you know, here's this really wealthy guy who's an investor. Um, and I was, I was into money. Uh, I liked it. I wanted more of it. Uh, but uh, I, wasn't, I would, couldn't say that I had a real investing framework. Um, but so I go back to Omaha and obviously, you know, Buffett's as amazing as you would expect. And I came away from there just fascinated with how does he have such a well-thought-out, articulate answer to every single question that anyone lobbed at him? Um, which got me to reading more about him. And, and of course, you're going to then uncover like his investment style. And when it was explained through, you know, through different, um, by different people and including by himself, Benjamin Graham's work, I realized, oh, he just likes to get a deal on things. Like he just doesn't like paying retail. I, that's been me my whole life as well. Like I hate paying retail. I'm always looking to try to find an edge and, and pay less or arbitrage something. And it turned out like when you do that in partial ownership of businesses, it's called value investing. And it made perfect sense to me. It was that inoculation. It clicked right away. So um, fast forward a little bit. Uh, I, I, my boss actually at the Energy Place was a huge Buffett fan. And he left to, and he was on the fast track to be the CEO in like a couple years, maybe less. Um, but everyone was shocked because he left and he actually left to start his own Buffett partnership. He started a hedge fund. And when he left, I, I said, well, you know, you don't have to pay me, but can I come sweep the floors and just learn from you and I'll help out however I can. And he was like, yeah, sure. And um, so I came and did that and we really like working together a lot. And in, in fact, uh, my last year of school at Davis, um, kind of thought I could be cheeky and uh, get credit for the work that I was doing already with my internship with him. So I like did like an independent study kind of thing, uh, trying to double dip. And um, I had some friends do this independent study class with me. Um, and we like basically my boss and I co-taught the class and we developed like a value investing kind of program out of that. Um, and I graduated and didn't think much more of it. And then the next year, some students came back and said, Hey, we heard good things about this. Would you come back and teach it again? And we said, well, okay. I mean, it was fun. Let's, we can go back. And so then we had 30 students uh, and then it happened again the next summer and we had 45 and then it happened the next summer after that. And we had 60. Uh, and at that point, then the, the finance department was uh, didn't really care for our 
the success of that and that we were teaching something other than efficient markets. Uh, and I, right, right. I tried to couch it as behavioral uh, finance, but that didn't really work either. Um, so, <laughs> but they, so anyway, it became too much work like to go to, I didn't want to go to the finance meeting, like faculty meeting. Um, so we stopped teaching, but it was such a tremendous like acceleration and learning for me as the teacher to have to come up with smart things to, uh, to explain to very critical, smart people um, how something works. And um, anyway, fast forward a little bit further, my, my boss and I, we enjoyed working together so much that we started Farnham Street together and rolled that original fund into it. Um, then we started doing some separately managed accounts as well and um, have built it into a, like a real business. So I never worked at Goldman. I never, uh, I never worked at any other real shop other than like another one guy shop from somebody who was outside of the industry. Um, and I think you know, on where it's helped has been that it's much easier for me to stay outside of the noise often and and keep that a healthy distance um, and not have expectations or, um, you know, cultural uh, Klingons from being in a certain place and like, well, that's just how you do it, right? Like I, I challenged every single assumption and try to build it from first principles. Um, where that can blow up is that you also like make a lot of first principle stupid mistakes that anybody who's been in a in a real shop would know right away like how dumb that idea is. Uh, so it's not an unalloyed good, but um, yeah, that's a little bit of the background of how I came from very far afield of investing to being the CEO of a an investment shop. How yeah, we just let uh, we just let Twitter do the uh, the correcting for us. That usually uh, the people on there are pretty good uh, if we have any embarrassing mistakes to uh, correct us there. How are uh, how how are the stakes with Buffett? <laughs> uh, well, it was at Garotts. If you're familiar with that restaurant, which is like the that's Buffett's favorite restaurant, uh, supposedly. Uh, but you know, it was kind of a little bit mass produced for that particular uh, that situation because you know there's a fair number of students and. So it wasn't, I've been to Karats lots of times since then and had a much better stake than I had on that first trip. Uh, but all in all, like you can't beat the company. So it was good. Right. And then you, we mentioned before, but you've written a book called The Rebel Allocator and kind of like the investment fund, it came out of a, you know, you didn't think you were going to be an author. At least that's a, that's what I think I've heard you say on Value After Hours before. So what was the inspiration for The Rebel Allocator? And we got to ask as a, you know, Munger diehards ourselves, we got to ask about the, I think the call you had with him too. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if I would have known the work and heartache that was involved in writing a book, I would have like sworn off well before I even started. Um, it's just such a soul grinding process and, um, really just takes you to the, to the mat. Uh, but it, it grew out of, um, you know, I, I was, studying all these different capital allocators and I saw like who, who was doing it well. And I, you know, I, I owned companies where I felt like, gosh, that's not really the right decision. Like, why would they make that decision? They're not stupid people, but they're, they're making kind of obvious mistakes. And it boils down to that. I think a lot of times they just don't have a framework for thinking about capital allocation. And Ian Buffett's lamented about this in his letters before about how, um, you know, oftentimes CEOs get to that role through being either like good at at sales, maybe, or even engineering, or worse, perhaps, uh, you know, political organization uh, and the ability to climb a, a corporate ladder, um, as gross as that can be sometimes. And they never get trained up to actually like make the 
the really the important decisions, which you know, one is the culture that you set, and two is really your cap allocation decisions, and those are the are huge drivers in in the success of a business. And you know, Buffett cited before that you know even if the 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 assets of a company get reinvested. 10% per year within 5 years 60% of the assets within that company will have been turned over so the decisions they're making they have a big impact and and it doesn't take that long until they have a big impact so um it was this question in my mind of like well these guys are really smart or and gals why are they making what seem like really stupid decisions and i thought well look, it must be because they don't have a good framework so i sat down to like work out a framework and that was probably a year deep dive of just, okay, well, what is capital? What is capital allocation? What are all the different ways to think about it? And uh, which can take you into just, I mean, it's crazy stuff from buybacks down to like VC to right. um, like all over the place, um, too much, right? And I, I got burned out and I took a break from it because I just wasn't making progress. And I thought, oh my God, if I write this book in a, in a nonfiction way that I imagine writing it, like you would kind of typically do for if you're a finance nerd and wanted to like write a book. Um, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so boring. No one's ever going to want to read this. Like it's a terrible idea. Uh, so I'm like, well, I can't do that. And there were a bunch of other little things that I felt like were nudging me towards telling a story. And what ended up happening was I, I thought, man, I don't, I don't know much about telling stories. I've read a little bit about Joseph Campbell, but um, who has told stories and who knows how to do that? And that led me to actually reading a couple of books on screenplay writing. And I then took those principles of a screenplay, which is actually like, it's, it's a Swiss watch of emotion, a screenplay is. like There's high points that have to be hit at certain junctures, low points, and it's all dialed in completely. And that's why movies often feel formulaic is because there's a, there is a formula to it. So I took all of that and then I took my sort of nerdy capital allocation principles and I overlaid it with a story. And I basically just took the Karate Kid and I made Mr. <laughs> Miyagi like a Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger amalgam and some other uh, luminaries um, and and then let that play out and just retold um, Karate Kid, but with, with cap allocation instead of karate. And uh, so fast forward a little bit, finally, like about three and a half years it took of messing around with this off and on. Um, and eventually I had a book done that was uh, about cap allocation, but it was a fictional story, uh, kind of an, an allegory. And um, I, you know, like everybody, I sent a copy to, to Charlie as a thank you because, I, you know, he's obviously a huge influence on it. And a couple of weeks later, I, I get a phone call at the office and it's, it's Charlie and he's, he uh, says, well, you know, I, I started reading your book and before I knew it, I'd read the whole damn thing. <laughs> I said, That's good. Wow, I can't believe it. Uh, and obviously, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Charlie fan. So this was the most surreal experience. Uh, and it was, it was a half hour conversation with Charlie and um, talked about different things. He had a lot of actually plot points of what I could have done better uh, in, in the book. And <laughs> Classic. Uh, yeah. Classic manga right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it turned into one of the most interesting half hours that I've ever had and um, made all of the heartache. And even if I only sold one copy or even zero copies and gave him the copy, um, 
would make that whole heartache worthwhile to be able to to talk to one of my heroes. Right. And then I guess on the actual topic of capital allocation, you kind of talk about how there's, you know, you have to move from disruptor a lot of the times and people get stuck in that and you might need different management teams to go from disruptor to capital allocator to potentially capital returns. I mean, how, how does that process work and when can someone go right and wrong in that situation? Yeah, I mean, there, there's different skills required for the different life cycle of a business. So, you know, when a business is in its infancy and it's just an idea, like you need someone who's a visionary, you need someone who has a high appetite for risk. Um, you maybe even need someone who ignores the base rates of understanding that failure is probably the most likely outcome, right? And that um, you have to be able to push through that and believe that you're going to do something special. And you have to be able to motivate people around you and build teams and and that will get you to sort of stage one. But then after that, it, it's like it has to become processes and culture and and really an operating system of like how a business operates within its within its environment. And that's a different skill set. Like that's building teams and cultures and procedures, um, finding new opportunities. And then Eventually, you know, every there's no business that's that's ever existed that will be around forever and never will be. And at some point, uh, the right thing to do is to have more of a cash cow mentality for a business and not just plow money back into it into rapidly depreciating assets into low return on capital assets. Uh, and eventually, um, you know, the, the business should probably be liquidated and wound down in a responsible manner um, that is. That is true to all of the stakeholders, whether it's the the owners in you know a capital deployment to you in the form of maybe special dividends, all the way to the employees and helping them find new jobs, to uh, your suppliers um, doing them right out the door, um, your the regulators you know not not leaving a big like toxic dump mess, um, right, the communities right. you do business in, like every single facet has to be managed and there's there are different requirements depending on where a company is within its life cycle. Hmm. How do you think about uh, management using like buybacks as a tool? I, I mean, have you seen any uh, horror stories with that at all? <laughs> oh, there's plenty. I mean, Bed Bath & Beyond, I guess the one that I think of. But <laughs> yeah, Sure. I mean, um, I don't really like to criticize by name. Um, but I will by category in that the the average CEO is a probably relatively subpar investor, and they buy back their shares when they are relatively expensive, when there's a lot of momentum, um, and it's it's no different. I mean, you sort of understand how they get there. Like they're they're excited about the future. Everyone is. The shares are expensive, um, and they they do buybacks typically towards the peak and. They then conversely, when you really, as an owner, want them to be buying back when they're really cheap, when it's the most accretive to you as a remaining shareholder, they're scared and they want to hold on to liquidity and cash. They don't want to deploy it to to shrink the the number of shares. And you can kind of understand that too, right? Like there's you that you want them to survive. You don't want them to take undue risks, right? And and plow all the cash into buybacks and then have nothing left over to pay the bills. That's that's not good management either, right. but um, this is where you know my, the book that I wrote. I was hoping to help with them think through that and at least have some 
a little bit of confidence in themselves that if they could think independently what their business was worth, then they might make some better decisions and not just sort of follow the herd blindly. Um, but there are huge institutional imperatives to to following the herd. So it's it's very you could see why the ones who are iconoclastic and think for themselves are are kind of a rare bird. Um, and it's it's because you really have to have a lot of confidence in your own decisions. Yeah, that kind of reminds me, we were doing some prep, reading some of your old um, uh, letters to clients that you put on your website to, uh, publicly. And I think you mentioned that capital allocators are an anti-fragile bet. You kind of, can you kind of explain what that means in the, the context of, of what you were just talking about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a good capital allocator is... Um, Yes, right, right. If you imagine, um, let's just take Berkshire to make it a very tangible example. And I will praise by uh, by individual in this case. (laughs) They they run their assets in such a way that they're very anti fragile. Like Buffett has a ton of cash on the balance sheet. He's he's pretty conservative in the accounting. Um, at, At every juncture, he is thinking about the future and how to to uh, number one, arrive there safely, but number two, uh, make sure that he can bring everyone along with him. Um, and another, another point I wanted to make about the buybacks. Um, if you think about the job of the CEO, one of the like public goods actually that it, that, that he or she can provide is to have the intrinsic value of the shares and the price very close together as close as they can. And the reason for that is that if the price is well below intrinsic value, when and this is not necessarily even buybacks, but this is even just you know for for individuals who are buying and selling ownership to each other, you are favoring one class over another. It's the the people selling are being hurt if they're paying below if they're being paid a below intrinsic value price, and conversely, if they're selling then they are taking advantage of the remaining shareholders if it's selling for well above intrinsic value. So one of the, if man if you're irrational in management, you want it to trade as close as you can to provide that a, a, a reasonable price for the shares that therefore no parties are taken are able to take advantage of each other as much. Uh, and I think there's huge public good to be done from that that sort of goes unrecognized that no one really talks about. I feel like that's like uh, sort of contrarian to the way a lot of management think now. I, I feel like there's so much uh, stock as currency, stock that's being used as currency that it's, that's a big topic. Yeah, it's in a favor to have sort of a premium valuation. Would you dis- disagree with that? It is. Um, okay, so let's let's like play that forward a little bit, and you have a very expensive currency, right? And you're able to take your currency, you take your stock and you buy another company in an M&A transaction stock for stock. The incoming shareholders got a bad deal, right? Like they overpaid. The management of the other team overpaid. Now, do that a couple more times. You will start to be recognized as someone who takes advantage of other parties and maybe your deal flow dries up and maybe people don't want to take your currency anymore. So you can maybe win in the short run with a rich currency, but lose the reputational long run eventually. Okay. And you think that's, uh, we're a little young for this, but that kind of is what happened in the dot combo, right? People are like, well, you know, they're using their currency. They're making these acquisitions. I guess it's accretive at these prices, but in the long run, 
uh, it's not a way for to build a durable business over over a few decades, you know. Well, I take it even further and say that at any any time a company is getting over on any of their stakeholders, any of the ones that we mentioned already, that is not a sustainable situation. Eventually, there will be a defection, and that they will figure out a way to try to bring the company down, or, or at least harm them uh, and get even with them, and so. Any time that somebody's getting over, um, it's that's not a sustainable. It has to be win-win if if you're going to have a truly long-run sustainable uh, situation. And it's uh, just kind of well, it goes back to game theory. So, right. so if you were if you were management and you had uh, an insanely overvalued currency or something like that, what would you do about it? I mean, it's that's it's tough because you don't have a lot of levers to pull, other than talking it down even a little bit. And that's there's question marks about how effective that really is. Uh, but you'll... I mean, Buffett and Munger have done that at multiple times when they felt like Berkshire was trading rich. Um, even like the B share, when they issued the B shares uh, and rolled A's into B's, um, they said, we, don't, we think this is pretty expensive right now, effectively. Um, so th- there's been multiple times where they've said that it's pretty rich, and conversely, they've talked it up a little bit too when it's been um, when they start hinting at like we'd be willing to do buybacks at this price to book, like that sort of saying, like, well, we think it's cheap here, and we, we'll be right. on the other side of the transaction just to let you know we'll we'll be the ones buying from you. So it's I, you could do a little bit of soft pushing, but there's not there isn't a whole lot that you can do, especially when it's overly priced. Right. And then I guess one more, one more question I have on that is, I guess a big example that I'm thinking of because uh, is Costco where you're talking about, you know, treating your stakeholders uh, fairly, I guess, you know, creating win-win situations. And whenever a company decides to like raise their minimum wage or something like that, or they're saying, all right, we're going to increase our expenses, lower our earnings estimates because we're paying our employees more. How do you think about that when you're maybe it's a company that you own, you see that? Do you think of that as an investment into like future profits, or do you think of that? Because it feels like a lot of times people have the at least investors have a short term mindset when they see that. But I guess Costco is a big example of you know paying way above the market rate, and their employees are just—I mean—they're the most highly rated retailer, at least on like Glassdoor and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, they're. It's rare to find even the management team who is uh, as delayed gratification as as Costco is. Um, now, I will say that, uh, like anything, actually, and you know, it applies to business and investing. But there are always trade offs to be made between efficiency and resiliency, and you can't have both. Like you can maximize for efficiency, which would be paying your uh, your workers, you know, less than you had to over a, a period of time, but you may be tr- you may be inviting then fragility, and you're not as resilient as you would be if you were paying a higher wage. Um, and maybe they're, you know, you get away with it, but then they go work somewhere else, or like your good people all leave, and now it gets much harder to operate in that next time period. So it's um. There are always trade-offs to these things, and they have to be made intelligently. It's not an it's not an open and shut case. Be, um, you're always choosing between efficiency and, and resiliency. Okay, it's kind of I think ensembles kind of talked about that more in regards to like pricing power with customers, where mm-hmm. like the concept of mortgaging your moat. Um, 
but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, before we take a quick break, uh, I, I read somewhere that when Munger called, he uh, recommended that you turn it into a movie. Have you gotten anywhere with that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I have somebody working on a screenplay. Um, somebody was really passionate about it, and but I, I recognize the odds of these things ever actually going anywhere. And I'm not, a, I'm not that foolish as to believe that like I can defy the base rate in that in any meaningful way. So chances are it's never going to go anywhere, but it's fun to just sort of have that little ping pong ball in the, uh, in the lottery hopper. <laughs> no finance, finance karate kids, basically the next Marvel movie, right? It's like, it's like <laughs> Avengers. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's got a lot of, uh, it doesn't have a lot of sequel potential. So that makes it already a non-starter for a, a typical studio. Yeah. Okay, we're going to hit a quick break and then we're going to talk more about your investing approach. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Uh, next, we kind of wanted to talk more about your personal strategy. Uh, so, so I guess what kind of habits uh, have you developed over the years that have improved your investment strategy um, or any lessons, I guess, that you've learned along the way? Yeah, I think my my biggest lessons are probably outside of the kind of business and and investing world and looking for insights in other places. Um, and so I read I, when I first started out, I read a lot of finance books, and I think you probably have to to kind of get up on the just the nomenclature. But eventually, it was like very diminishing returns on the next finance book, and. Um, Instead, you know, I've gone more towards biology and engineering and physics and math and things where um, hopefully there's like these mental models to be grabbed there that that do a fair amount of heavy lifting um, and and make it easier to recognize patterns. Um, also, the other thing that I'm kind of obsessed with is really like creating the optimal conditions for for peak decision making. And because at the end of the day, like that's all my job really is, is like make a couple smart decisions a year and then don't F it up. Uh, that's that's kind of right. like that's a successful uh, that would be a good year. So but like, how do you then create peak decision making? Um, you know, for me, the, I mean, there's tons of things when it comes to hygiene mentally that will help to put me in a state that I can make the best decisions. And it's, you know, it's sleep, it's exercise, it's um, good relationships, it's uh, health, you know, food and plenty of sunshine and walking and swimming. And I mean, just just kind of all the things that would kind of make you a healthy person, uh, you know, hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, yeah, yeah. I know Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all of those things and, and will, I think give me the best shot at biologically being in a place to make great decisions, have a clear mind. Um, meditation is part of that too. Um, 
kind of taking out the mental garbage and and giving a, a clear space. It's really hard today when there's so much content out there to you could just kind of drown in all of it and like to go find solitude. And that, that doesn't mean necessarily being alone, but I, I for me, solitude is not having someone else's thoughts being inputted into me in a sensory way. So I can go when I go for a hike or a run or something like I've, I stopped bringing podcasts with me often now because it's like, I just need some time where it's just my own little kingdom and I don't need someone, you know, this input coming in all the time. Um, so to find some clarity, like it's amazing what the connections that get made and will pop when you actually make room for them. Um, the other part of it is, you know, the investing world is a very wicked space. And I use that term in the uh, Jamie Hogarth, who's a researcher of learning environments, defines them in kind and wicked. And so a kind learning environment is one in which feedback is immediate, it's unambiguous, uh, and it's, it's very straightforward in cause and effect. Um, you know, it could take like riding your bicycle and you you know, you jerk the handlebar to the side and you crash, like you're going to figure out pretty quickly, like, okay, well don't jerk to the side. Otherwise like it's going to hurt. Um, but in the investment world, it is so noisy and it's so wicked. It's the opposite. Like the, the feedback loops are so long and untangling luck versus skill is so hard that what do you do then when you're trying to get better at something, but the, the input and the output are so disassociated often. Um, an interesting mental exercise uh, and we actually did it on the show early on, the value after hours was I challenge you to figure out if you had to make an investment and one year from now, pick the thing that would do the worst, right? Like what would you, what would you guys pick if you were, if I said like, okay, you have one year and what would you choose that will produce the worst, the most ruinous outcome for an investment? Like a, um, like a specific company? It could be any, yeah, if, if, yeah, whatever you want. I mean, Oh man, that is a tough question. Yeah, EV. Ryan, do you have anything? Uh, maybe some of these specs, I guess. <laughs> I would. I think. I, I would say. Uh, I think I would say either. Yeah, like a Nikola. But the or, time horizon is so hard to get right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you could have said Nikola and whatever it was a year ago, and it would be up like a thousand percent on you in that year, even though yeah. it makes no sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so over that short time period it can go literally anywhere. And so now how do I figure out, well, I made that decision a year ago and now what? Like, am I learning from that decision and am I learning the right lessons from it? So I, I spend a lot of time figuring out and building systems actually that help incorporate uh, tightening up some of these feedback loops and figuring out like, okay, well, a lot of it is sort of like, it's not much more complicated than journaling. Like, what was I thinking at that time? And if I can bring myself back to that time period and then see the result later, I can sort of maybe start to get some intuition growing, right? Because intuition only grows if you have good feedback. Um, and there just is not good feedback in the investment world, especially if you're kind of doing a, if you're not a day trader, um, right. then then the feedback is so long and so, so messy. Um, you have to find other systems to help you connect the dots and figure out input and output. Um, so another example that I do that, um, I haven't heard anyone else really talk about this, but you, I, um, so all of us, you know, get different investment ideas and, you know, someone pitches you an idea and you're like, Oh, okay. That sounds interesting. And you kick the tires on a little bit. And then you like, eh, not for me. And you move on to the next thing, right? Like we've all had that experience. Yeah. 
well, why did you say no to that particular thing? Uh, maybe it was too much leverage. Maybe it was, I don't understand the business. Maybe it was, uh, I don't like the management. There's a million different reasons to say no. Okay. Well, those are my filters. Like I'm rejecting it for this reason, but are those filters helping or hurting me? And do I know, like, what does that investment then go on to do? What is the opportunity cost of me saying no? I've started keeping track of why I reject something to give myself the feedback on how my filters are helping or hurting me. Are they, am I, re- if I so let's say too much leverage. Like I've, I have the, I have a hunch that because I'm conservatively wired that I reject leverage much sooner than probably the average person. Uh, I can't tell you yet whether that has helped or hurt me over the last dozen years that I've been doing this because it's quite possible that there were, uh, you know, the equity of a company that was highly leveraged was actually a very attractive opportunity and, and led to this asymmetric outcome because it ended up surviving. And it was like this huge home run. And I threw it away because I said, oh, too much leverage. Right. And, but right. I, so I, I can't tell you yet. I, my N is not high enough on this yet, but someday I will be able to tell you that. I I choose to reject these higher leverage companies and here's what it costs me. Um, and I can either decide, do I want to keep doing that? Or should I relax that filter just a little bit? Because I, I've figured out that it was suboptimal. Um, I think it's not a bad idea to try to bake those kind of processes and efforts in if you really want to get better at this game. Do you, I guess the concern, like when I think through that, the concern for me is that I'm going to, it's going to take me 15 years or whatever to figure out whether or not that decision I made was right. Are you able to learn that vicariously through other people, whether it's through reading or something like that? Uh, yes and no. You're, you are right that it, it may take 15 years. And my first inclination was to say, yeah, it probably will. And that's okay. This is a lifetime game, right? Like, and you, you keep getting better. And if, if I'm going to be really good at this 30 years from now, then I kind of have to go through a little hell, maybe the first 15. Um, but my other uh, pushback on that, I would say is, so we get returns on a, for whatever reason, we've decided that like one lap around our sun is how we want to measure time. And so we look at our returns on an annual basis, typically most people. And that's how you measure yourself. Am I beating everyone else after we've just made this lap around the sun? Um, well, if I'm looking at only returns, then I'm getting one data point per year per investment. You can dramatically increase your in by making probabilistic projections about company fundamentals. So for instance, I personally like to look at sort of the drivers of, of returns, which in my mind are the change in earnings, the change in multiple, so kind of sentiment, dividend, uh, and then there is some place a little bit for uh, leverage changes. But typically, it's mostly like earnings and, and multiple of earnings, if that's one way you want to measure things. I can make, uh, you know, there's five data point predictions that I can make there for every lap around the sun, as opposed to just the one return. And I'm getting, I think, a lot, I'm, I'm getting more at reality than necessarily just everyone's perception of reality, which is what the short-term market kind of tells you. So I can say, 
I think one year from now, Apple's earnings will be 10% higher. And I'm 60% certain that that's the case. The, the reason why you want to use probabilistic predictions is that this will help you to tighten up your how much certainty you have or not. And you want it to eventually, if you did enough of these, you want it to be that when I say 60%, that it happens six out of 10 times. Like I want to be properly calibrated on my confidence. So I, I don't want to be overconfident or underconfident, actually. Um, so you can build up your in quite a bit faster by making these kind of predictions and keeping track of them. And then you'll, I think you can get to that sort of 15-year luck versus skill question a little bit faster if you're measuring other things purely than just price performance. Right. That makes total sense. Yeah. Use that that journaling part is underrated. And I, I've heard so many people recommend doing that. And just it just makes total sense. But getting back to your specific investment strategy, how has it evolved since when you started? I believe the first year, if correct me if I'm wrong, was like 2010, 2011. How, how has it evolved from then until now? So when I first started out, um, I was very, very quant driven. And it was because I felt like I just like, I don't know anything. I like, how am I going to, what are the chances that me at whatever age I was young and stupid was going to have some unique insight that like everyone else was missing. Right. And this was mispriced and like, I'm a genius and contrarian and everyone else is an idiot. And I'm, you know, I'm the smart money here. I just thought that that was a really tough proposition to say that that's true. <laughs> And so that led me then to, well, I'm just going to be mostly quant. Like, this is like, is it cheap now? All right. Like, I know if I buy a basket of these really cheap things that I'm approximating the returns that have been put up by a lot of the studies of different value strategies. Like, hey, great. I'll, I'll take that. Um, and I'll, I'm willing to buy stuff that, like, it seems like no one would ever buy it, but it's just based on the numbers. I don't know anything about the management. I don't know. I don't care. Um, but, and that, that works. Um, however, like, you know, you get to the point where net nets dry up. Okay. Well, that was one thing I like to do. Now what? Um, now I got to move up a little bit. Okay. Uh, net current asset value as a, as a thing versus price. Okay. Well, now I'm moving up to, well, price to book. Like I'm working my way down the, the balance sheet to less and less liquid things and trying to assign values to them uh, and feel like I'm still getting a deal. All right. Well, now that's a, that's starting to require a little bit more, uh, you know, judicious judgment on my part of like what something's actually worth. When I was just counting cash, like that was pretty easy. Like I felt pretty good about yeah. that. Um, well, you keep going, and eventually, you know, you're valuing intangibles and you're valuing all kinds of parts of a business. And before you know it, you've moved from the balance sheet to the income statement, and now you're looking for what's the business quality and this was a very, very gradual process for me. And it's actually only recently that I felt like, you know what, I've probably done enough work and put in my 10,000 hours to, to be deserving to at least like give myself a little bit of credit if I do find something that I think is, is a unique situation and is mispriced. Um, and I'm, I'm really, I don't want it to be arriving at that conclusion because like, you know, we're at, year 12 or whatever of a bull market when everybody is that genius, right? Like there is no, yeah. there aren't any, <laughs> there's no dummies left, right? Everybody's a genius. Everything's worked. Um, everyone ha can explain with a beautiful narrative why it worked now. Um, yeah. So I don't really want to be that person. Like I, but I do think that if, I, I can find the occasional insight. Um, and, you know, I go back to, you hear Charlie talk about he says that him and Warren, and this is after 50 years of looking, 
have found like four or five businesses where they thought, oh, wow, this is just like, it's such an obviously great business. I can't believe it's on sale for this price. And this is probably, I mean, no joke. If, if Buffett really does just run the Geiger counter all day over stocks, like looking for these kind of things, he's probably looked at, I don't know, 50,000 yeah. and, and found like five. So what are the chances that all of us are, we have a whole basket of them. Like everything in my portfolio is that, right? At this one time, right? What are the chances? I'm a little dubious that that is, that is what's happening. And yet, boy, if you're on Twitter at all, you would think that they're just growing on trees and everybody's like has this narrative of genius of these special businesses that are layups and nothing can go wrong. Uh, and I'm just, I don't know, like I have this little negative streak in me that's like, yeah, I'm, I got to call BS on that. I just don't think it's possible that we're all that smart. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, the, uh, I think when you see like his Apple investment, um, and I guess Coca-Cola back in the day too, where I think now it's what, 40, 50% of the stock portfolio, people look at that and say, all right, he did that. Now I got to be super concentrated as well. Do you think that means like the way you're framing it? All right, well, maybe, you know, we shouldn't have as concentrated positions. We shouldn't put all our eggs into one basket unless we've done the work like like they've done. Well, I mean, part of that is you have to look at um, you have to look at Berkshire as like the the right, marketable right. securities portfolio is not the is not a portfolio like that's not how Buffett looks at it. He looks at the entire asset base, and that's right. like upwards of nine hundred billion dollars. So his hundred billion dollar ish, whatever it is now. I'm not sure. I think he might've sold some of it. Um, let's just say it's a hundred for, for argument's sake. You know, it's not a 50% position, a hundred versus 900, right? It's like, what is that? 12 or something. So, yeah. um, he is, he's much less, uh, concentrated than armchair pundits would, would imagine when they just look at the, the marketable securities portfolio. Right. Okay. And then one more question about your uh, strategy. I think You've mentioned this before, but I didn't find the exact uh, paper. You had this growth, either blog post or paper you wrote, maybe in 2015, if this is wrong, uh, correct me. Uh, how during that time, you know, deep value is kind of on a good run then. How does having like a contrarian take, how does it feel in the current moment? Because I know a lot of people say they can do that, but then there's just a ton of pressure on you from the consensus, you know, uh, opinions out there. Yeah, I think I know which one you're referring to. Um, and Toby likes to Carlisle likes to bring this one up a lot. I don't know why. I think he's, he thinks it's funny or something. But uh, <laughs> so in 2015, um, and this was no macro call. Like I just was finding that our holdings had been pretty fully priced. We'd done well, but I didn't see a ton of kind of headroom for them based on um, what I thought they were worth versus what they were trading for. You sell and God, what do I replace with this? I don't see anything really that's as interesting or like, where, where do I put my money? Like there's no, nothing's on sale. And especially in this like cheaper 10% of the market, which is where, you know, the kind of stuff that I traffic in, like I'm digging through the dumpster and there's like, there's not much, not, not many interesting much garbage in here at this point. Um, and so that then led me to like kind of looking at more, not so much macro stuff, but like macro valuations. Like what is the general price level? Things like CAPE and market cap to GDP, another uh, very dangerous <laughs> macro valuation distractions. Um, but at that time, 
I saw these this work on what was called dispersion. And what that is, is measuring the cheapest, call it decile, and you can use price to book or price to earnings or any multiple versus the most expensive. So basically, like how wide is the dispersion around whatever average you're looking at? So you could say that the, the market's at a 15 PE, but if the if the quote unquote value basket, the cheapest decile is at a 12 and the other, um, if the most expensive is at 17, you have a very tight dispersion around that 15 average. Well, previously, historically, you know, 2008 and nine, uh, other periods where like that actually preceded a value heyday, like 2000, um, were really large dispersions on that cheapest versus most expensive. And in fact, the 99 cohort is especially interesting because when you took uh, the cheapest basket there, it was actually better businesses, higher returns on equity of the cheapest wow. 10% decile than the most expensive. So you got better businesses and obviously like way cheaper. And so the whole market was very expensive in 99. I think we went up to like a 44 Cape, but you had this basket that was really high quality and was super cheap. So average, just look, just like anything, if you look at the average, that can that can belay what the real curves look like and you know, like what does the hunting ground look like for that cheapest 10%. Well, when we get to 2015, it's really tight around a pretty expensive average. And so I said at that time, I don't think value is going to have a particularly good run from here because we're just starting off from kind of a weak opportunity set relative to other points in history. That was really smart. Where I was dumb was I didn't then make the next logical leap, which is therefore growth might be mispriced too cheaply right now. And I, my brain didn't ever go there in 2015. And I think that's what, Buff, what Toby finds funny and why he like, likes to bring it up. Because uh, then like, I had the answer sitting right in front of me if I, was, if I could oh, okay. take just one more logical step, but I, didn't, I couldn't do it at that point. I was too stupid. All right. Well, uh, in, so, our, in our book, you were right. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was half right and then half very wrong. So um, those, I, I will probably, I'll try not to make that mistake again, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I read... I think it was an interview on like Guru Focus or something like that. And you said, I think it was in 2016, that you were a little worried that you were too risk averse. Has that changed at all? Do you feel the same way? Uh, I guess, have you adjusted your framework now versus sort of those comments then? Well, I mean, has can anybody who's like kind of conservative and uh, worries about the price that they're paying not feel like they aren't too risk averse in today? I don't, it's, oh, it's pretty tough. Yeah. Um, no, it's so hard to, to do that today. It's weird. I mean, I guess for anyone that's listening, that's kind of younger like us, that's only been around in the markets for, you know, four or five years or something like that. How, like, are there any, what's this sentiment like from someone that's been around for, you know, different kind of years here? I mean, how, how different is it really right now? Well, I mean, I wasn't a, I wasn't a professional investor in 99. Um, okay. I, I've heard from others who were that this feels worse, actually, like more wow. insane. Um, and I think part of that is that, I mean, at least in 99, like you had that great opportunity and value at that point, right? But that was, you know, even if you didn't see that, um, you know, you could get five or 6% on your treasuries and you could sit yeah. there and at least that's, at least you're making some forward progress. But today, I don't really know where you can put money to get a reasonable, safe return. 
um, if you're not willing to go out pretty far on historical speaking, like risk spectrum to even get some return going. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I think Munger's got a great, great quote about, he says that there are times where the market trades based on the use value of the cash of businesses. And there are times where the market trades like a Rembrandt. And, um, you know, there's nothing to do with cash flow. It's just purely like, if I buy this, is someone going to pay me more for it later? And yeah. we are, I think we're pretty safe to say that we're in a very kind of Rembrandt environment. Um, it's not so much the cash flow of anything that really matters. It's, can I, is there someone else behind me who would probably pay me more for it? And if I think it's worth 2X, can I find someone who thinks it's worth 3X? Because that's the only way I can get to 2X is if they think it's three. Um, so, and I mean, thus far, that's been a, that's worked pretty well. And I mean, there are lots of ways to play this game. And like, I don't begrudge people that, um, that are making money in ways that to me, like don't make sense. Um, I, there's this concept in Buddhism called Mudita, and it's basically the exact opposite of schadenfreude. So if, you know, schadenfreude is where you get delight in watching others misery and suffer. And, um, you know, and, and the finance world is the worst when it comes to this, right? Like we hate it when someone else is having a great year. Yeah. Uh, I'm we, want, it. yeah. <laughs> we all are. It's really, it's human nature, but for some reason, money like supercharges that. And Mudita is the exact opposite where you can genuinely celebrate when other people are successful. And I've been trying to cultivate more Mudita in my life and less schadenfreude. And if they can make money doing it that way, then you know what? I'm, I'm trying to be happy for you. Um, but to me, it's, that's not how I want to do it. Like I want to buy businesses that I feel like I can understand what they're worth and pay a fair amount less than that. Uh, and, you know, and, and feel that like I wasn't taking crazy risks when I, when I made the purchase and I feel a little bit like a dinosaur in that way. Um, cause it's, it's like, it's very out of step, but I don't know how I would do it any other way. Like, like going back full circle to the beginning where I was talking about that sort of inoculation and value investing and not paying overpaying for something. Well, the big part is understanding what it's worth at the beginning. Um, and so if I can't figure out what something is worth and I can't know if I'm getting a good deal on it. And a lot of these things, I just, I can't tell you what it's worth at all. Like there's no fundamental for me to anchor to like, why would it be worth that versus half that versus four X that I don't know. So those are, I just stay out of those games. Um, but those are seem to be a lot of the most profitable games right now. So. Yeah. And one, uh, I guess we wanted to go back to Munger for a bit. I think, I mean, there's people that have studied them a lot, but you are well-versed in the, the Mungerisms and, and all his writings and his talks and stuff like that. So what are, you know, for people that aren't, uh, I guess, experts on Munger and Buffett, what are some unknown or underrated things about Charlie Munger that investors and maybe just people in general can learn from? <laughs> well, lot, I mean, I, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I think, um, so let me paint the scenario for you. He's, um, you know, he's a real estate lawyer. He's or a lawyer, but also like does a lot in real estate. And he's, he's made a fair amount of money already doing that. And Buffett talks him into running a fund. And so he sets up uh, Wheeler Munger, I think it's called limited partnership. And he's managing money for, I think about 10 years and his track record's pretty good. Although boy, was it volatile. I don't know if you've seen the, the year to year results, but like, I think he's in a three or five name portfolio sizing. So when those things move, like the whole thing moves a lot. 
So his the volatility is all over the place. Uh, it's a rough ride to get to that pretty good return that he had. Uh, he he stops doing it, and you go, well, wait a second. Like he's clearly successful. He's made a lot of money. Um, why wouldn't he keep doing it? I think it's because he recognized, like, yeah, I'm I'm really smart, and I couldn't do this if I wanted, but. I kind of want to go design uh, a dorm room and uh, a, a catamaran and read all day. But boy, I know this guy who is just an absolute deal junkie and he just yeah. likes to read 10 Ks all day long. It's all he lives for. He doesn't barely talks to his family because he's reading about businesses. He just loves to be in the nitty gritty of it. And I, I can help him along the way by like pointing out some bigger picture things and and I can be helpful, but this guy is just a grinder. Like he'll grind more than I ever will. So what does he do? Like he turns over most of his net worth to letting Buffett grow it for him. And he's a billionaire now because of that, that one decision. So he was smart enough to kind of put his ego away and not say like, well, I'm going to do this better than even Buffett. Right. He's like, this guy's so good and he's so into it and has such a passion for it. You know what? It's, you can you can run most of the Munger family net worth, Mr. Buffett, and I'm going to go back to doing things that I find more fun. Um, now I don't know how much of the takeaway is there is for everybody. Like you know, if you you know who you know an early Buffett, but I'm sure there are, are there's some situation where it can apply where you you might be doing something for yourself right now where there is someone who is super passionate about it and might be willing to do it for you and do a way better job if you could kind of put your ego away and and let them work on it. Hmm. No, yeah. And then uh, it feels like Munger is almost like, was he Buffett's coach kind of? You know, it seems like it's kind of like a Belichick Brady type deal. I don't, I don't know. That's kind of the analogy I have in my head, but that might be a bit flawed. <laughs> I, no, I think that gives too much credit to, to Munger probably. I mean, I think he helps him and like with, I mean, listen, so you can work on the nitty gritty and like saw wood all day long and create a beautiful log cabin, right? But or you can be reading about these really esoteric, you know, reading about um, psychology research when no one else was doing that at that time, like going all over the place for multidisciplinary ideas and really sharpening the saw. And when you already have someone who's as smart as Munger is, who I mean, he he tested off the charts in the army as far as IQ, um, and then you give him like a lifetime to work on finding patterns and you know things that work and historical examples and him being able to pattern match. I mean, M Buffett says that Munger has the best 30-second mind that he's ever come across. And that's where it comes from. Like He's a genius and he has all of these patterns that he's built from reading all these years. So having someone on your team who has that 30-second mind, I think could probably save Buffett from sawing a lot of wood that didn't need cut potentially. But that doesn't mean that you can build a, a really nice log cabin without eventually cutting some wood. Uh, so I, I don't think the coach analogy is exactly right. I think I'm not sure what the right replacement for that would be, but, um, but maybe just friends who have different skill sets and complement each other. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're both uh, obviously really smart, but it seems like, uh, like the more I learn, it seems like. Uh, Munger's kind of just a normal person with outside interests and Buffett's just addicted to making money. Yeah. I'm, well, I don't know how normal Munger is. Like, I don't know too many people who just like sit and read all day uh, just yeah. for the, for the joy of it. Um, but yeah, 
he definitely has he he's got a lot more uh well-roundedness to him than buffett for sure um all right so you've also been on twitter for a really long time if i'm getting that right um why would you accuse me of that (laughs) has uh has that helped you at all or i mean do you think it's been an advantage to be on the platform Have, have you gained anything from it Oh boy. I have a love hate relationship with Twitter. I I've been, I started an account, I think 2011 or 12 or something, which now that I'm getting old was a long time ago. Um, but it, I wasn't real active early on. It wasn't that interesting to me. And, um, it wasn't until even in the last couple of years that I actually started to be a little bit more regular on there. Um, I hate it from a solitude, you know, find some space from the noise, uh, get a healthy mental reset standpoint. Like Twitter is the inverse of meditation. However, I'm not sure there's a better networking platform. Um, I mean, just the people that you can meet and kind of get to know, especially if you're willing to meet, well, at least before COVID, uh, if you're willing to sort of meet outside of in the real world um, and connect with people, it's such a, I mean, it's it's everything that LinkedIn wished it could be when it comes to networking. Um but I mean, it carries that huge cost of the noise. And um, the other problem is, is that like, I'm kind of an idea junkie. Like I love to find like a new big idea and it will serve up just often enough some really interesting article or, um, you know, interview or something that really adds in a meaningful way to my, my mental model arsenal that it keeps me coming back. But God, do I have to sort through so much Yes, to get to that like one nugget. And if I wasn't such an addict, like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't subject myself to that. So it's, uh, I guess it's a really mixed answer, but it's, I I love it. And I I also absolutely hate it. Has it, or go ahead, Ryan. Has it ruined your solitude or that uh, (laughs) environment you talk about? Oh, it will if I let it. Like there have been periods of time where I've, I've indulged in more Twitter and um, I find myself feeling empty after those. Like there's something kind of gross feeling or it could actually just be like dopamine withdrawal, honestly, like at the biochemical level. Um, It raises your blood pressure for sure. I mean, you gotta, I mean, you see people, you know, all caps, rocket ships, you know, a lot of emojis. You kind of got to filter through all those to get those golden nuggets that you're talking about. Because, I mean, sometimes you find the, you know, just people, I mean, even anonymous accounts or just written stuff that is just amazing on there that you never find anywhere else. But yeah, I guess we'll hit the wrap ups. We got to, we're going a little bit long, but we asked this to everyone. So we'll just ask it to you as well. What is one financial saying that you disagree with? Maybe it's not so much a a financial saying, but um, I've been thinking a lot lately about about labels and identities and what they the impacts that they have on us and you know even calling myself a value investor um, well what does that really mean and what what does that then mean that I'm not and what does that close off um, and I, I think it's really dangerous actually to paint yourself with too many identities too many labels uh, I think it's like a really a, a good shortcut to turning your own brain off because your brain wants to try to keep consistency with what you say, because it really wants to keep your ego at a certain level. Right. And if it knows that if you go out there and say that you're this, and then you're, you don't act that way, then 
like it's going to be a hit to your ego because people are going to call you out on it. So it's try- it's just trying to protect your ego really at the end of the day. And if I can not give that ammunition to my my brain that like, hey, uh, all these things are off limits because you are labeled yourself as this. Um, like why tie that hand behind your back if you don't need to? Uh, so I guess it's tough because you also want to be principled, right? Like, and you want right. to have things that you follow and like, you're not uh, swayed by every breeze, but I think, uh, you know, keep your principles, but, but keep your identities to a minimum. Do you think uh, like Stan Drunkenmiller is the biggest example of doing that the best? Cause it seems like he doesn't care about getting stuff wrong. It feels like every interview he has, he's admitting, yeah, I put up 30% returns for 30 years, but look, I got this wrong. I got this wrong. I got this wrong. I got this wrong. And it seems like he does everything under the sun. Do you think that's kind of, if someone's looking for inspiration for that, reading some of what he he's talked about and written about? Yeah, I think it's really dangerous to pick any one individual to model yourself after, even Buffett. Oh, yeah. Like you're picking, like we have to be respectful of base rates whenever we can. And the chances that you are that, you're going to have that outcome of these very extreme outliers in whatever it is are just, you know, I mean, we just have to recognize that the chances are not that great. Like it's probably not going to work out for us. So let's try to pick base rates and people and, or a class of people that we can maybe more, more accurately emulate that have had good outcomes and see if we can get that as opposed to the very, very extreme outcome. Like there's there, which they're always going to be good and bad, right? Like you throw it, there's enough luck in the universe that there's going to be these really extreme outcomes and to draw too much inference from any one of those, I think is kind of a dangerous thing to do. All right. That makes sense. Okay. Before I ask the last question, this one kind of just came to mind, but I'm curious what, uh, what sort of influence value after hours has had on maybe your philosophy at all? Has it changed the way you think about investing or not much? (laughs) Um, The good thing about it is that it's, it's been a really nice forcing function for me to keep going and like looking for interesting tidbits to read more about and bring back to the community and like do a little write up on it and talk about, I don't know, some, random thing of like uh, how a sperm whale works and why that can help us be better investors. Um, so, you know, it's fun to have that like a deliverable every week, like, Hey, you better come up with something kind of interesting. Otherwise, you know, it's people are going to think you're a dummy. Um, but there's also like a, a part of me that is um, really hesitant to do the show actually, because I know that I'm going to say something really stupid in hindsight. If you talk that much for once yeah. a week, like it's just inevitable. Like something I say is going to be cringy in a big way eventually. And so, I, I mean, I try to pick topics that are timeless so that it, it decreases my chances of that, uh, but it's, it's unavoidable. So, uh, and I also just like, I don't have that many interesting things to say. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know if you guys noticed, but like I talk the least on the show uh, and I kind of pick my spots and a little bit that's, I'm thankful that the other guys are good at carrying the conversation and kind of let me be a, a counter puncher. <laughs> Um, but it's like, it's like, I'm going to say something really dumb and it's just like, it's, I don't know. It kind of makes me sad to think that that's unavoidable. If I just keep showing up every week. We, we, we kind of have that in a big way because we do stuff that's obviously less evergreen than yours, where we 
analyze like one or two companies a week. And sometimes we'll give hot takes that just come out as probably the dumbest right. thing, like a year. Yeah. Oh, I disagree completely with that a month later, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's, a- that's, yeah, that's the other thing you kind of have to worry about is that, that public proclamation commitment, yeah. consistency bias. Um, anything you say too much publicly can, I mean, you're, you're going to try to live up to it somehow for better or worse. And um, I, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but I also don't really talk individual investment ideas that much. I don't talk about the things I own because I'm worried about that. Like, I don't want it to be, well, well that's the, that's the hill I'm going to go die on like that just because I talked about it one time in a, in a value after hours. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. La- last wrap up question here. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering a career in investing? Uh, well, I say this a little f- flip, but like, do you think there might be something more meaningful to do with your life? <laughs> um, I- I'm a little joking, but I mean, really, I think uh, it requires an extreme passion. And I think if you, it will be so psychologically challenging over at some point, no matter what strategy you're running, like it, you will be tested. And so if you're not really passionate about it, it's, it's hard to do enough work to get through those really dark periods. Um, and I say that as someone who's lived through this last, you know, kind of value winter. Um, it, you know, if I wasn't really believed that I was doing the right thing, it, it, I would have been scrubbed out of it by now. Um, so and you will be if you'll be tested. And so if you're not passionate about it, then I would say, and if it's just about making money, then I think there's a lot more interesting ways to do that. And, and a lot more value added to society ways to do that um, than, than necessarily choosing businesses in a secondary market, um, like is the stock market. Uh, but you know, if you're still, if that still didn't dissuade you, then I would say, um, you know, do everything you can to to really think for yourself. Um, try to fight that inu- iner- that institutional inertia, which is really strong in this industry. Um, and and you can see why. Like all the incentives are pushed towards that. Like to be wrong by yourself, contrarian is is the death sentence. Um, to hug the index and collect your management fees is probably the like smart way to go from a business standpoint. Um, but. But then you get to the finish line of life and you go, well, what did I really do that whole time? Um, that wasn't, I didn't really deliver much value to the rest of humanity. So I, I would just maybe push people to think a little bit deeper and not just chase chase the money. Okay. Well, that's all the questions we have. Uh, for anyone that wants to see more of your stuff, uh, where can they find you? What are some good resources? Um, well, yeah, I guess... So I have farnum-street.com, which is the, our our investment business. Um, five good questions.co is the the interview series I do with authors. That's um, been on a little bit of a hiatus because I've been busy with other things. But um, it's on a, Rebot- it's on Apple Podcast, right? Yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, I just hasn't I haven't put out a new one in a little while. <laughs> um, then uh, you know, Value After Hours is on a bunch of different whatever podcasts yeah. are and YouTube. Uh, Rebel Allocators on Amazon. If you want, um, check out the the audio book. I thought that turned out pretty good. Like the I I hired somebody to do the 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 reading of the book, so you don't you don't have to listen to this nasally drone drone on and on. So uh, that it's much better. This guy was like a real pro. He did a great job with it. Um, yeah, and then I guess on Twitter I'm at Farnum Jake One. If you're interested in that, but 
I don't know. Don't follow me. Go like do your own stuff. Go, go <laughs> pick your own adventures. Go do something fun. Yeah. Well, there's plenty, there'll be plenty of veggie segments. That's what we know for sure uh, on value after hours. Right. I'm trying. I, I try to stay like one or two weeks ahead with like just a reserve <laughs> just in case, like I run into a dry patch, but uh, it's, they're not, <laughs> there's only one or two in reserve at a time. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. Had fun. Thanks guys. Appreciate having me on. Okay. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Jake Taylor for uh, coming on. Really enjoyed it. Uh, Let's get to show notes. There was some big stuff this week, really just one big event, which was the Berkshire annual shareholder meeting. Uh, It was not in person. They said it might be in person next year. I'm hoping to go. Yeah, we only have a few chances left, so maybe we, go. maybe we, we don't have go. any. I don't know. There was some big news that came out of it. Uh, Greg Abel will succeed Warren Buffett as the CEO. I'm not sure this was super newsy, but uh, I thought it was hilarious that Charlie let it slip and Warren yeah, was sat there quiet for a while. I got I got nervous for him when it happened. I was like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. He just did it, <laughs> and he just goes, mm, Greg will keep up the culture. It was like, it was like, and Warren just sat there quiet for 10 seconds. <laughs> and then everyone's yeah. like, uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall when they, they met backstage. Yeah. I don't know. They I said they never, they said they never get into arguments. So I, maybe this started their first one. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought it might've been the start of the first one. Uh, a few quotes, though, that I took from the meeting. Uh, I think I got some of these from Trent Griffin, also on Twitter. Charlie said at one point, uh, capitalism is brutal. Uh, think of what's died in my lifetime. Just think of the things that were once prosperous that are now in failure or gone. It's incredible what's happened in terms of the destruction. Do you think, because this is something we've come across a lot recently, as people are, are sort of valuing some of these companies as if growth will go on forever or that they have these long runways and everyone's going to be able to capture a significant portion of their TAM. Do you think we're going to see sort of this recycle again? Or do you think the companies that are sort of in the top tier are a little more permanent maybe than 20 years ago? Because they talked a lot about the companies that were the largest 30 years ago, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, the, the night, you know, I did that comparison, the 20, it was the top 20 companies in 1989 uh, by market value were not, none of them are on the top 20 today. Mm-hmm. I do believe that is the general framework you have to go out with, but two caveats from 1989 to 2021 or no, I don't know. I think you might've been doing it to 2019, whatever the time period was, few decades of span there. Uh, 1989 was at the height of the Japan bubble. That yeah. was the biggest bubble in possibly history. So that misled some of the numbers a bit. And then two, from 1989 to 2020, we went through one of the possibly like top five biggest uh, technological revolutions in human civilization, uh, So, which would be the internet revolution and uh, stuff like that and all the stuff that came along with that. So yes, I think I agree with them to a point that things will grow and die, but the last 30 years were probably one of the most rapid and disruptive times. And I guess that could continue. You never know, but uh, I wouldn't, you know, look at the past 30 years and think that just because there was so much disruption, then doesn't mean there has to be disruption at even that rate over the next 30 years. But in general, you know, they're, they're, they're right as usual. 
Yeah, it's always hard to picture like some of the top companies dying. But when you think about it, I feel like at any period in history, you could say the last 30 years were the most revolutionary. You could say it was yeah. the most dis- uh, disruption that's happened. Yeah, you could argue that. You, you know, there's a few other times in history. I mean, late 1800s, maybe early 1900s uh, with the automobile revolution and stuff like that, you know. But yes, this time is clearly, I mean, if you had, if you're making a top five, you definitely put the last 30 years in there. Okay. Another quote that I had was from Warren. He said, if present zero rates of interest on risk-free U.S. treasuries are appropriate and last, big tech companies are bargains. Big tech has an ability to deliver cash that makes their valuations very cheap. I Now, there, he was asked this. He was asked about the valuations on, about how crazy the valuations were on big tech. And he said, uh, we don't think they're that crazy. Yeah. Do you, I feel like every quarter, I just want to buy big tech and go to sleep for the next decade. Yeah. I mean, they I think you go down to, you go down to Google and Microsoft in my book. I just like, I like those two the best, but. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I mean, there, I guess there was one, a little, yeah. An important point there was that if present rates are appropriate and last, I think that's hard to extrapolate that out, but some, I hear this from all the best investors that these are different than previous big conglomerates that it's yeah. it is a little different this time yeah i think that that's true to a point and uh that's my next topic so i'll probably just say that for that okay uh, another charlie quote uh this one was pretty demoralizing he said investing <laughs> is harder now the millennial generation is going to have a hell of a time getting rich um does it doesn't feel right. Does he feel correct as much as yeah. is, it hurts to swallow? Yeah. I kind of think of like the, the time period, the last 40 years we talk, I think the big bull market is from like 1982 to now is kind of, I mean, there's been, you know, 2008 and 2000 and COVID and stuff like that. But, you know, from 1982, the, the valuation low to now, uh, I kind of put it in the framework of what Chris Meyer does with his hundred beggars, where to get really good returns, you need multiple expansion and fundamental growth. From 1982 to now, we got huge multiple expansion across the United States stock market. And we went through one of the biggest technological booms, like we mentioned earlier, of, the, you know, ever. I mean, that was just fantastic for boomers' uh, portfolios. And now, we're, you know, our generation, people in their 20s right now, even early 30s, we're starting to invest. I mean, there's no like way, other way to frame it. We're starting at all time highs. Or sorry, not all time highs, in all time high valuations. Yeah. It's so, I mean, I don't know. It's such a tough, it's tough to conceptualize and it's tough to digest because we're in the situation where we're the ones that have to invest for the next 40 years. And you hate to hear it, but I just, I find it hard not to agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Especially when it's not even anything sort of macro. It's just, you know, every rock we turn over, it, it, high valuations are kind of becoming the new normal. I hope it's, I mean, selfishly, I hope that changes soon. Obviously for society, uh, we don't want a huge downturn. But I mean, if you look at it from a Berkshire Hathaway standpoint, if they didn't start in 1982, but instead they started, or, you know, they started before that, but if they were, you know, coming into their eighties and nineties were kind of their heyday, right? If 
it was a huge advantage for them that valuations were so low and, you know, right in the, in the early eighties. Yeah. I mean, that's just a gigantic advantage and that's a little bit of luck on their part. Obviously a lot of it was skilled too, but if they're starting now, I mean, hey, valuations maybe, matter. Maybe 50 times earnings is the new normal in 2030. Yeah. So you never know. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, do we have to mention that Robin hood quote too? Um, uh, our statement today. I mean, that was, just feels so much like 1999. I don't know. Do you want to, there was so that? much like, there was so much Charlie and Warren hate coming out of this one that it, it's never made me feel uh, sort of more pessimistic about general markets because there was so much like, oh, they're out of touch. They've lost it. They don't understand markets anymore. I've been doing this for two years and I've crushed their percentage returns. It's like, guys, just listen. Just, I don't know. <laughs> listen, you don't need to have some hard takeaway, especially, yeah. You know what Vlad's an Ev? He doesn't like you. No one likes. You. No one likes what Robinhood's done. You don't have to sit and defend it. Yeah, you're you're a you're a sin stock. Um, I mean, I would just say one. You know, Berkshire Hathaway will probably. I would make a good prediction that Berkshire Hathaway this year will generate more cash than Robinhood will ever generate in its lifetime. And then two, I would say that you can disagree with him about like Bitcoin and stuff. Whatever, they're old. They don't get it. Um, that's fine. But. I mean, they're right that the, a lot of the markets have been turned into gambling. If you don't think that's true, I think you're just kidding yourself. So, yeah, right? I mean, do you agree with that uh, That stuff? I know that, that cash flow thing is kind of a joke. It just puts into perspective what they, I mean, it's basically like these guys, it's like a guy at your gym, say, in a pickup game, hits 10 threes in a row randomly. And then he's like, no, yeah, I'm basically Steph Curry. It, it just... Uh... Nothing made me want to get off Twitter more than the post commentary of the meeting. It was so frustrating. Um, but all right, I'm going to go to my last quote here. It says, it was Warren. He said, we're seeing substantial inflation. We are raising prices. People are raising prices to us. It's being accepted. We really do a lot of housing. The costs are just up, up, up. Steel costs, you know, just every day they're going up. It's an economy really that's red hot. Now, we keep getting data that says we're not seeing inflation. Do you witness any sort of, have you witnessed any sort of rising prices just in day-to-day life? Yeah. I'm saying probably not the good anecdote here just because I don't really spend money on anything. <laughs> so except food. So yeah. I'm not really sure, but if I, I think it'll hit personal lives and consumers, you would guess, right? Like it, it would be a lag. Right. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so they're a business and they're looking to source stuff when they actually start selling to consumers, there's probably going to be a lag. So maybe this summer, uh, but who knows? But yeah, if, if Buffett is saying this because they basically are in as many industries as possible. So they really got their eye on the ball of what's coming down the line. I'd be very skeptical about CPI um, this summer. If it stays low, seems like it's got to hit like three, 4% at least. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to leave it at that. You want to talk big tech earnings? Yeah. So uh, last week, we, you know, all the trillion dollar or at least the companies, I think Facebook's the one that's just a below a trillion dollar market cap. They all reported earnings. So it was huge for the market in general. I mean, they make up like 20, 30% uh, of market value and all of them knocked it out of the park. You got to remember a bit when reading these numbers that we're, we were getting into COVID. So some of it was a good comp setup. You know, the comp sales could have been a lot better. And some of them aren't like recurring revenue businesses. For example, Apple sales were up 54%. But a lot of the times 
you know, the revenue can be lumpy, but still, I mean, Apple <laughs> growing revenue at 54% at their scale is amazingly impressive. Um, Amazon did over a hundred billion in sales with AWS growing 32%. Facebook total sales were up 48%. Operating income was up 93%. Microsoft sales were up 19% with operating income up 31%. And then finally, Google sales were up 34% and their operating income doubled. Clearly, I want to say this now, we've been wrong on the quote, law of large numbers theory with these companies. Uh, the question I have, will we look back at this January, April period? So, you know, the last four months behind us kind of during the, you know, when uh, stocks like Tesla and GME and a lot of these SaaS companies and SPACs kind of went to the moon. Are, are we going to look at this time and see this group of stocks, FanMag, or I guess, you know, don't include Netflix, but these five trillion dollar companies, are we going to see them as the best risk reward investments 10 years from now? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, for most of these, it's hard to just, it's hard to like refute the success. Um, and it's always, I'm, I always get worried that once I finally, there's going to come a day when I cave and say, all right, this is a great risk reward. And that's the day that I capitulate and realize that the law of large numbers is real. And yeah, then, it's so hard to weigh, like admitting you're wrong and, but well, maybe I wasn't wrong and I'm just acting really stupid. Yeah. I saw some good tweets about it. They're like, for some reason, people, we are seeing one of the best sort of technological disruptions or uh, cycles ever. And they're clear leaders in it. And some of us will rationalize any reason just not to own the companies. I think that's me. It just, yeah. Well, we kind of get it. Are, are just incredible. Now I will say with Facebook, there's, uh, they are trading at the cheapest multiple. Google might be. It's close. Google's a little higher. Yeah. Google's close, but I think Facebook's going faster. And then you've got, but I would say Facebook's future is the least certain. Yes. hundred percent. I think the two but, things to take or go ahead. Of, well, just because of the personalized ad stuff with iOS and they said they're, they're, they're not sure about their second quarter. I mean, so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, you know, yeah, we'll see if that's just a temporary thing or it's permanent. And I'd also argue that they don't really have the entrenched, you know, they're not as entrenched with consumers as, and while they all, you know, they have almost 3 billion users now, you could argue they're entrenched, but I just, I think it's a lot easier for consumers to leave their services. Uh, could be proven wrong and could continually get proven wrong on that. But I think the I big takeaways is we feel like with FanMag and stuff like that, we've always felt that the instinct is that it's lazy to just invest in these companies and that at their size, it's going to be hard to put up these numbers, but I just really think we were wrong on that for sure. Yeah. I think maybe it was lazy to say it's too big. Yeah. And that's where the opportunity, plenty of people were probably thinking the same thing as us. Yeah. All right. Um, is that all you have for them? Uh, I got one more. So playing off the, you know, Buffett had that, the big company slide uh, where 30 years ago, the top 20 companies, you know, weren't the same as they are now. It was like companies like IBM, ExxonMobil, stuff like that. Uh, so playing off of that, which of these five stocks do you think has the highest likelihood of still being in the top five companies by market value in the world um, a decade from now? I can go, If you don't have one yet, I can go first. Uh, I would say it's between Apple and Google for me. I'm saying Google. I think second for me would be Microsoft. 
Nah, I, I think Google's the clear one here. The only potential downside to Google is that somehow there's some huge mobile or, or some new like uh, a device shift where they're not the search platform. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But that's, I guess that's, that's yeah. pretty speculative. I would say Google's a pretty safe bet. Yeah, because they, I mean, they lock in with Android, Play Store, Search, Gmail, YouTube, Drive. I mean, it's a lot. It's tough to overcome all those uh, ancillary services, but I'll let you get on to your next story. What do you have? Uh, Apple. The, the, the story I have is titled, Is Apple in Trouble? So last week, the EU uh, charged Apple with anti-competitive behavior. Uh, the EU's competition chief, I'm not going to even try to say her name because I'll probably butcher it. Um, Vestager? I think that's what it was, yeah. Uh, I've, I've heard it pronounced. That's, that's all I I know it. Uh, she says that uh, Apple will be charged because the App Store breaks EU law, and this is in response to a complaint filed by Spotify two years ago. For anyone that doesn't know, Apple charges a 30% commission on in-app payments, and it also prohibits apps from directing users to sign up elsewhere. So Spotify used to say, like, used to tell its users, like, you got to go sign up. Uh, I think they did this. You got to go sign up. They still do browser. this. Yeah, not, yeah. 99% of uh, their subscribers aren't subscribing through the App Store. Um. And so Apple, Apple tried to prohibit that. Uh, and there are more steps in the process. So I should say this is sort of like more of a developing uh, problem. But Apple, I believe, is going to appeal it. But if Apple is ultimately found guilty, it will face a fine up to 10% of global revenues. Uh, there are, I think there's similar disputes going on in the U.S. right now. We saw sort of that uh, the transcript of the dialogue where Match Group uh, how much money they're sacrificing to the app stores. Uh, I guess just where do you stand on this? Do you think Apple's in the wrong? What do you think the commission should be? Yeah, so I, I'm not as, and this is less an investing mindset and more of just a personal mindset. I'm not as hot about the 30% commissions. While I do think it's not a great way to treat your stakeholders and your customers, which in this case, or sorry, your partners, you know, Spotify and Match and stuff like that it's fine. Like you can charge them that much, but that's just going to open up for competition. Yeah. You can argue that they, they, they own the phone and stuff like that. So you'd probably expect that they're going to make the app store commissions go lower. I mean, you've seen Google go down to 10%, I believe, uh, although that could be wrong. But the thing that uh, I really believe is just a cold set case is the Apple music stuff and the evidence, the clear evidence that Apple, when they're dealing with someone who they compete with in services like Spotify, they make it really difficult for people to sign up for stuff in the app. They make it really difficult for updates and they make it, uh, there's just a lot of things they do to inhibit them. And there's a lot of evidence that Spotify has that they've done that historically. If you read the Spotify play, and I'm just speaking Spotify here because we know the company so well, but the examples can go to many other businesses. Uh, there's plenty of times where Apple has used its monopoly power through mobile to inhibit them. Now, the commission's thing is whatever, but I was reading a thing about Andrew Carnegie and they had a quote from like the Sherman Antitrust Act. And I forget exactly what it said, but I was like, huh. And it was something about how you can't use your power to basically make it it was, I can't remember what it's saying, but I was like, all right, this is exactly what Apple is doing with these apps where it's just totally, it's just, and yeah, you could, you know, business isn't fair or whatever, but it's totally anti-competitive and bad for consumers. 
because like the app is just worse than it could be. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm probably biased as a Spotify and match group shareholder, because I'd love to see their operating margins grow, but. Uh, oh yeah. As an investor, put them to zero. <laughs> Let's get going. Right. Yeah. I just, I think Apple's come away like the hero of privacy, but it feels so, I don't know. They feel like they're really kind of the monster in big tech. Yeah. They, they, they just grandstand with stuff like this. I mean, you see them talking about how Apple music charges more or sorry, pays more per stream, but that's just total clickbait. Cause it's not how you should evaluate it. I mean, A lie. okay. It just, they, the, the revenue is just based off of subscriber pools. It has nothing to do with streams. Streams are just percentages based off of those subscriber pools. It's all about total subscribers and ad revenue. I mean, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It just shows that Spotify is getting more use and Apple music doesn't, whatever. That's a whole, that's a whole hole. We don't need to go down, but <laughs> yeah. All right. What's your next story? Okay. Uh, so upslope capital, uh, I don't know who runs that. Sorry. If you're listening, uh, I really like your work on Twitter, but they produced a document that they kind of go through to evaluate how they should look at an investment. Um, and this is from someone who has a lot of experience in the industry. So if you're someone that's new or inexperienced like us, this is a great doc to keep handy. Um, if you message me, I can try to find it, but you can find it on Twitter. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. I bet we'll forget. So don't count on it, but I'll go through a few things he said, or they said, uh, and I, you know, they're not necessary. These are things we don't necessarily do. And I'll see what we think about them. Um, no questions on, I'm just kind of going to read them off and see what you think. Uh, first one quote, learn to say, to love saying quote, no for now. What do you think about that one? Uh, I, I think that's something we do. And I, it's something I agree with. I mean, we do two deep dives a week. We've probably done hundreds and we own how many companies in Arch Capital? Eight, yeah. 10, 12. So I think I think we, that's something. I think maybe sometimes we're too piggy. So perhaps. Uh, yeah, I guess I do. We I a lot of times we say the company's good, like about fifty percent of the time, because we you know we usually choose companies we think are gonna be good. Uh, like fifty percent of the time, we're like, yeah, the company's good, but watch list, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole Buffett thing. Like, wait for a fat pitch. Like, sometimes you get a good company at the wrong price. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that I think a lot of investors go through where you like, oh my God, this company is amazing. And you got to just temper your expectations where you're like, well, I mean, yeah, it's trading at a hundred times cash flow. And yeah, I mean, that's what you expect for a company that amazing. All right. I'd also, one, or go ahead. I, I would also flip that and say, if you're sold on it, say yes, but for now and wait to kind of digest the idea because sometimes yeah. you can get too excited and be willing to pay up for stuff you shouldn't. Work. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, and you may go through a slower, faster process. It usually takes about a month. You know, no, you really I, it might only take me a day to write down the idea, but it usually takes me about a month after learning about it to kind of digest everything and think about, you know, it might just, it's not constant thinking about the stock, but you kind of go through periods where you're like, Hmm, what about this risk? What about that? Blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll hit the next one. Quote, good or bad M&A, IPOs, spinoffs, et cetera, can be a great source for value dislocation. What are your thoughts there? Uh, yeah, I think that's been going on ever since. Greenblatt wrote his book. I mean, before that too. Uh, what's it called? You can be a stock market genius that kind of talked a lot about the spinoffs and stuff. And 
Yeah. It's a, it's a harder area to dabble in. Um, and you got to really understand the inner workings of every deal. But if you can get an edge in there, there's more, there's more certainty. Yeah. And because they're, well, yeah, that's true. And there's a higher, I think, chance of good returns just because a lot of people are uncertain about these type of things. And sometimes there can be expenses that mess up what the true operating margins and unit economics, stuff like that are. I think two examples are one for a spinoff, the PayPal spinoff from eBay. Um, that was one of the best investments of all time or sorry, has turned over the last five years, not of all time. And then two, I think an example, we'll see if it plays out, but the M&A of, or sorry, the, the merger of Callaway and Topgolf, a lot of people are wary about it, but it's interesting to see like how those assets can work together. That one's still up in the air, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. Next one. Uh, just because those with an opposing view, either bull or bear are defensive morons, that's his words, <laughs> not ours, <laughs> doesn't mean they're wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess it, it is easy to write people off if they're too passionate about something, but. Or if you think they're dumb, because they might not be, and you might just be dumb. They, yeah, they could have the proper tech, uh, I think, evaluating the idea and not the person saying it's the best thing you can do. Yeah. All right. I'll move on to the next one. Quote, lay out your estimates in graphical form. What do you think about this one? We don't, we don't really do that. Uh, no, we don't really do it in graphical form, but that's a good idea and maybe something to implement. Uh, yeah. I'd be curious as to why he prefers that. I think it's, yeah, I don't know. It's probably just the visualization aspect to see what the difference, because sometimes you see like a number like 99 versus 60 or something, you know, and you're like, eh, whatever. It's not that big of a deal, but in reality, it's actually a lot bigger than you think. Um, all right. Next one, quote, write a pre-mortem instead of a post-mortem for all your investments. So kind of in the risk session, right? If things are going to go wrong, this is what's going to happen. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with, I think all these are good ideas. I think that's the best thing you can do is make sure you're certain about the downside to protect against it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and if you write the pre-mortem, it gives you something that you can anchor to where you can't just trick yourself into think things are fine when they're actually going bad. It's like, no, no, you wrote this down three months ago or a year ago. It's actually going wrong. You got to, it forces you to help yourself, help yourself admit that. Um, all right. Last one. And I guess this, we already kind of covered this earlier quote, if you missed a long and it's higher or a short and it's lower, don't automatically write off the idea because you feel dumb. This is a tough one. Yeah, this is one that I do all the time. I think it's probably the hardest one, uh, the hardest sort of bias that I get as a investor. It's so easy to like, uh, it's so easy to just check what uh, the stock has done. Um, I, yeah, I feel like every time you end up saying I missed the boat, the boat goes a little further. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. It's so tough when something's up like a hundred percent, but it's crazy. It's, uh, it's really tough because yet, I don't know. It's hard to do, but right now it seems even harder just because we're at, um, you know, peak valuations, 99th percentile right now, but yeah, that's it. You want to move on to your next topic? Uh, yeah. So it's an anecdotal evidence. I subscribed to the print edition of the wall street journal yesterday. Wow. You're trying to be a boomer and get those, uh, 1982 returns. Huh? <laughs> 
I think I'm just missing the, yeah, I think I'm just missing the valuations of that decade. Uh, I haven't got it delivered yet because it takes a while for them to get like update the post route or whatever. Um, but I think it'll feel good not to stare at a screen. It was $12 for 12 weeks. I've got the student discount. So yeah, it's pretty easy life hack. And, uh, I'll keep the listeners posted because uh, this could this could really change my morning routine. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, you gotta do the what are they what did, what did Buffett used to do? He bribed the postman to give him the the journal the night before. You gotta start doing that. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if you got into that part of Snowball yet, but no, he, uh, I think you just uh, spoil spoil it for me. But yeah, so he used to get, he used to get him at midnight and then read it at midnight. Cause he's kind of a psychopath <laughs> for, for news. But I was thinking of this, like I, I'm probably gonna have to get your leftovers the next day. And it may be time for me to get those, you know, you see those Bloomberg digital subs. They're pretty cheap. I might have to get that. And I also feel really dumb for subscribing to real vision. They convinced me with that Joel Greenblatt and Howard Marks interview to subscribe. And you can only do it for a year. I think yeah, um, now it's just crypto crap. Yes, that's exactly how I describe it. Crypto crap and chart crimes. I'll let you have stuff on there, but God. I'll let you have my leftovers, but if there's any good ones, I'm going to frame them. So frame them? What do you mean? (laughs) Frame them? It's like once a decade. Oh, sure. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, I can give them back to you. And you can frame a March, March 23rd. Yeah, I think I'll give it back. Yeah, you can have it for uh, $13 for the next 12 weeks. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. All right. All right. What's your story? Okay. This one should be short. Uh, call it data versus the narrative. Not a foolproof study here, to be fair. So don't think this is like set in stone, laws of physics or anything. But there was a Harvard Business School study. And this is what they found. Uh, we found that the more a firm responded to complaints on Twitter, the more likely it was to fall in both value and in perceived brand quality. In addition, we also found out that when firms responded to complaints publicly on Twitter, it would often drown out their other tweets, leading to lower engagement rates for their non-complaint-related tweets. So, you know, it's kind of weird. It falls in the face of what my people might presume is a good for a company. You know, you got com- you know, CEOs on Twitter. You got, um, you know, the brands themselves on Twitter. I guess, you know, like when you see Wendy's responding to those complaints, trying to be super hip and funny. Uh, and they're getting deep into a Twitter conversation. People might actually forget about the products that the company is supposed to promote. That's interesting. And I, I guess customer support is dead. Chivalry is dead. I don't know if that's chivalry. <laughs> they, they showed an example of like a company that went into conversations, but every time McDonald's gets a complaint, they just put the customer support link. And that's all they do. Check this link. I bet it's automated. Check this link. And apparently they got a lot more better results because they just did that. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I guess if you just ignore the angry customers, they don't exist, I think. Or no, I can I think mean, of a company that's very good at that. Well, well, I think, yeah, we don't need to talk about that. But what <laughs> the, the conundrum you get into is if you try to respond to angry customers, it kind of inflames it where if you don't ignore them, but listen to them and imp- try to improve the product, You know what I mean? Like if you start responding to so many people, they're going to people, other people are going to realize that there's an issue at hand. Yeah. It's kind of weird. And also if you're spending your time as a company doing this, 
it means you're not, that's time not spent focusing on improving your products and services. All right. What's your uh, last story? Yeah, I got one quick one here. Stripe announced that it's buying TaxJar, which if you've seen us cover Avalara, this is an Avalara competitor, a little smaller though, might be for different businesses. Uh, and if you don't know, Stripe is one of the, um, uh, I guess you don't know Stripe, you probably don't know Adyen. How would you describe Stripe? Just plugging in an API to websites and allowing you to take payments, right? Kind of. Increasing the GPV of the internet. Yeah, yeah. Whatever their fancy <laughs> schmancy mission statement is. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what Stripe does, but if I were just guessing from commentary, it's the most well-run company in the world. Yeah, and apparently it's trading at like 100 times gross profit in the private market. So it must be, it, it's got to be a good one. Uh, but again, this is a short one. Does this acquisition make sense? And do we need a Shopify Avalara acquisition? Shopify would probably buy Avalara or definitely would because they're a lot bigger. What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, there's synergies for sure, but I think Shopify could probably come up with something in-house that competes, um, maybe. I guess I don't know the complications of the industry. Mm, it's pretty complicated. I've kind of researched Avalara. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I think good for Stripe, I guess. Kind of. It, it, it helps people, you know, like a small sure. business. Yeah. I, I don't know the industry well enough, but... Uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal to, uh, on the customer's end, pay two different service providers. That's true. It can't be that big of a deal. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you just boost the cost of Shopify Plus if you added Avalara or Avalara or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it has the integration already. So it's basically a merger. They should just get, you know, it's kind of like one of those like get married already kind of deals. <laughs> the thing is, if Shopify had brought Avalara, well, it's tough because you can't really bring it in-house. You'd lose all of Avalara's non-Shopify customers, but it's weird. It's kind of a weird conundrum where you want to get, you want to try to build a competitive advantage with some of these products, maybe these tax compliance products, but it's kind of tough. You don't want to lose all their customers too. I don't know. Don't need to go, don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, that's kind of all I had on that. All right. Well, that's going to do it. I don't have any more stories. So thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Jake Taylor, for coming on the show. I don't know. If hey, check out. Yes. Thank you, Jake Taylor. And check out the seven investing recs. We'll harp on at this show because they just came out with the new ones. But seriously, code CCM, $10 off. All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We are general partners at Arch Capital uh, and other partners may have securities discussed, uh, positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.